0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 4. A negative confession is insufficient. Quote, at the same time, it must be said that Chalcedon is not without roots in respectable ecclesiastical tradition. It is, in fact, a revival of certain teachings contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith, at least in the Confession's original formulations. These particular elements in the Confession, long since rejected as manifestly unbiblical by the mass of those who who stand in that confessional tradition, as well as by virtually all other students of the Scriptures, have been subjected to official revision. The revision, however, has left us with standards whose proper legal interpretation is perplexed by ambiguities, and the claim of Chalcedon is that it is the true champion of confessional orthodoxy. Ecclesiastical courts operating under the Westminster Confession of Faith are going to have their problems therefore, if they should be of a mind to bring the Chalcedon aberration under their judicial scrutiny, end quote. Meredith G. Klein, 1978. The first published, full-scale, uncompromising, academic critique of the position known as theonomy, or Christian reconstruction, came in 1978, five years after the publication of Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law, and my introduction to Christian economics, and one year after the publication of Greg Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics. It came from Meredith G. Klein, a professor of Old Testament at both Westminster Seminary and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. While he was at Gordon-Conwell, Dr. Klein wrote an essay for the Westminster Theological Journal, quote, comment on an old new error, end quote. It was a review of article of Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics. This Gordon-Conwell connection is, in my view, extremely important in the whole Westminster seminary versus theonomy debate. The kinds of criticisms emanating from the Kleinite graduates of Gordon-Conwell are of a very different style and content from those coming from within the traditional Presbyterian and Reformed camp at Westminster. The publication of Klein's essay involved a very peculiar review procedure. First, the main section of Bonson's book had been accepted by Westminster Seminary in 1973, as his THM thesis. This fact should never be forgotten by the readers of Westminster's Confession and Theonomy, a Reformed critique. Second, Reverend Bonson was not allowed to reply to Klein in the WTJ. Here is how I described the problem in the 1979 80 issue of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction when I published Bonson's reply, quote, M. G. Klein on Theonomic Politics, end quote. Dr. Klein and the editor of the WTJ in 1978, W. w. Robert Godfrey, have had 11 years to lodge a complaint against the accuracy of my statement. They never have. As editor, I wrote, quote, We want to be fair. We offer Dr. Klein the right to reply to Dr. Bonson's piece. We did not make a verbal deal with Dr. Bonson, as the editor of the Westminster Theological Journal made with Dr. Klein, that no one will be allowed to publish a rebuttal to his essay." From 1978 to this day, Dr. Klein has remained steadfastly silent in print regarding Dr. Bonson's books and views. Given the devastating thoroughness of Dr. Bonson's 1979 reply, One can hardly blame him. I still believe, as I said in my 1985 prologue to Dr. Bonson's book, By This Standard, that this exchange was a case of Bambi meets Godzilla, with Bambi actually having launched the attack. In any case, the traditional rule of formal debating should be borne in mind by the reader. The second rebuttal is where the debate is usually won or lost, if the debaters are of equal talent. Dr. Klein never offered a first rebuttal. He apparently does not believe in debate. Now, however, a dozen years after Klein's essay appeared, the faculty of Westminster Seminary has offered a kind of first rebuttal. Well, not exactly. A rebuttal assumes that a debater is defending his initial presentation. What is glaringly obvious in Theonomy, a Reformed critique, is the absence of any contribution by Dr. Klein. Two of the essays, by Frame and Poitras, are basically critical of Klein's position, and a third, by Moises Silva, is specifically critical. It is the members of the Gordon-Conwell faction who seek to defend Klein in this book. These are men who are fellow travelers with the Wheaton College Christianity Today InterVarsity Axis, which I have described elsewhere as trendier-than-thou evangelicalism. What is noticeable about Westminster's collection of critical essays is its threefold division. The, quote, Biblical Law Without Its Most Rigorous Civil Sanctions, end quote, group. The Church Concern Group and the Gordon-Conwell Group. The activists are members of the Gordon-Conwell Group. They are the ones who are most upset with the political and economic views of Christian reconstruction. For example, the Old Testament's case laws. Klein's Confession Klein made it clear in 1978 that his objection was to the work of the original Westminster Assembly, 1643-1647. to 1647. Those men, sometimes called the Westminster Divines, were, in Klein's view, confused theologically. Their work needed major revisions. While he refused to specify precisely what revisions to the Confession were later made, or when, he must have had in mind the revisions suggested by the Presbyterian Church in the USA. Suggestions made in the same city, Philadelphia, in the same week that the Constitutional Convention began, May twenty eighth, 1787, and approved by the Synods during 1788, while the ratification debate of the U.S. Constitution was also going on. Those creedal revisions were made in part because colonial Americans had adopted a great deal of Scotland's post-Newtonian 18th century Unitarian Natural Law theory as had the framers of the Constitution. By 1788, both the political revolutionaries and the theological revolutionaries in Philadelphia were ready to impose a new covenantal order on the new American nation. Philadelphia has become the model for the defenders of political pluralism. Nevertheless, the revision of 1788 altered only a few words of the Westminster Confession, but those words were covenantally crucial the supposed biblical basis of adhering to the theological and philosophical foundations of that 18th century national covenantal order was exposed as philosophically fraudulent by Cornelius Van Til. Van Til's unwavering rejection on biblical grounds of all common ground philosophy and all natural law theory destroyed the intellectual possibility of the American synthesis between Christianity and neutral humanism. So did the work of Charles Darwin and his successors. So has the U.S. Supreme Court. The question for Bible-affirming Christians today is this. What now? Hardly anyone wants to think about it. Even fewer want to ask the questions in public. But for those who call themselves disciples of Van Til, the question cannot be honestly deferred. Nevertheless, most of his academically tenured disciples have done their best to defer it for a regeneration. The latest example of this deferral is Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. Judicially speaking, both campuses of Westminster Seminary are located in Philadelphia. Theonomists come to the Westminster Confession with a principle of interpretation, hermeneutic, similar, though not identical to the one they use with the Old Testament. Theonomists assert, with respect to Old Covenant civil laws and their specified sanctions, that anything not rejected by the New Testament either specifically or by implication, is still in effect judicially. Similarly, unless the Westminster Confession has been revised, all of it should be accepted as still binding on those who swear allegiance to it. If we adopt the further hermeneutical principle of original intent, we need to go, first, to the two catechisms, which were official final documents of the Assembly, second, to the debates of the Assembly, and third to the contemporary published exchanges relating to the issues dealt with by the assembly if the theologians of westminster seminary ever attempt this project in depth and then publish their findings we will then have a far better understanding of westminster's new confession i do not expect to see such a volume here is a significant fact about theonomy a reformed critique there is only one indirect reference to either of the catechisms in the book as far as i can see D. Clare Davis's brief mention of the responsibilities of inferiors to superiors. There are none in the footnotes. It is difficult to check, however, because the editors did not bother to include a subject index, which indicates that they really did not take their book very seriously. They surely did not take the readers very seriously. No one hates the task of indexing more than I do, except possibly Nigel Lee. But I always see to it that the books published with money I control include complete subject indexes. The readers deserve no less. The Westminster Confession of Faith No greater assembly of theologians of comparable biblical wisdom has ever been assembled. For almost five years, these men labored to produce a comprehensive yet concise statement of what God reveals about himself and his church in history. The assembly brought together the most rigorous theologians in a distinctly theological era. They came in the midst of a civil war. There were no protective cloisters in Great Britain during the 1640s. There was no place to hide. Why Westminster? Why not someplace else? Presbyterians are rarely told why. The British Parliament met at Westminster, and in 1643, with King Charles I and his forces wintering in the city of Oxford, Parliament acted. It called an assembly of Puritan theologians, Presbyterians and Independents, to deliberate on the nature of the church. Great Britain was an Erastian theocracy. The king was legally head of the church. Thus, with this head in headlong flight, a head that would literally be removed in 1649, Parliament's war against the king necessarily involved a war against the king's servants, which meant the Anglican hierarchy. The old refrain, no bishop, no king, was believed on both sides of the conflict in 1643. It was also believed during the Restoration Era of Charles II after 1660, as testified by the Act of Uniformity in 1662. The modern American Church believes what it has been told by anti-Christian political pluralists, namely, that the American civil religion can tolerate no expressly theological grounding in the Bible or the Trinity. Religion is useful social cement. Biblical religion, however, must not be used to build a national covenantal foundation. This is the central assertion of the American civil religion. It is the religion of the Christian American academics. It was a revolutionary idea in 1787 and 88. No one on earth took any church confession such as this seriously in 1645, except in the tiny North American colony of Rhoda Island. In 1643... Parliament faced a monumental crisis. England was in the midst of the first modern revolution. William Holler described this crisis in the late 1930s. Religion was believed to be central to the outcome of the Civil War and the nation. Quote, The question of how and in whose interest the Church was to be governed involved also the question of how and in whose interests the loyalties and beliefs, the intellectual and spiritual life, in a word the public opinion of the nation, were to be directed. End quote. In our day, the self-imposed, self-declared cultural isolation and impotence of the church is taken for granted. Not so in 1643. Parliament called the assembly in order to re- reorganize the church. What it should have done was to disestablish the church, thereby abandoning Erastianism. Had it done so, there would probably not have been an American Revolution. For in that later English Civil War, colonial opposition to the appointment of a colonial Anglican bishop was fundamental, a denial of parliamentary control over colonial legislatures. History moves forward, not backward. We cannot go back and show our predecessors where they erred. Were they to see what the Church has become in today's society, they would pay no attention to us anyway. The American civil religion is the fully developed product of the Unitarian rationalism of Newton and the Royal Society, which was Charles II's abiding gift to Anglo-American civilization, not Cromwell's. It is the product of a later generation of politically Unitarian rationalists, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and above all, Madison. An ancient tradition. Parliament exercised its authority to call the Westminster Assembly for advice on ecclesiastical and theological matters. This was hardly a shock in 1643. In 325 A.D., Constantine brought another assembly to Nicaea for a consultation, an assembly which set the standard for all subsequent church assemblies. It was at Nicaea and the subsequent early church assemblies that th- the theological and moral foundations of Western civilization were hammered out. A thesis offered by R.J. Rushdoony in his Foundations of Social Order and systematically ignored by modern church historians, especially at Westminster Seminary. By rejecting Arianism, the early church broke with the idea of the divinization of man, and therefore with the state-worshipping political order of the ancient world. Jesus Christ, and he alone, is God incarnate, an ontological status that was the product of a virgin birth, rather than moral or metaphysical evolution. And with this creedal assertion came law. Rushduni writes, quote, It is significant, and it was inescapable, that, as the early Church formulated the creeds, the councils that announced the creeds also announced canons, or canon law, to govern the Church and believers, and to declare God's law to the state. It was impossible for creedalism to develop without a parallel development of canon law. As the creeds progressively formulated the reality of God's sovereign power and Christ's role as priest Prophet and king over man and history, the councils simultaneously brought life under the canons of the faith, under biblical law and morality. Christianity not only formulated a canon law, but, in terms of Christian faith, it reformulated civil law. Quote. Westminster Seminary ignores this relationship between canon law and civil law. This is not surprising. Canon law is regarded as culturally irrelevant. Mainstream American evangelical seminaries have taught nothing except the American civil religion from the beginning, prior to Princeton Seminary, 1812, where the Log College and its subsequent incarnation, the College of New Jersey, where the Presbyterian foundations of this civil religion were first developed. What is interesting is that secular humanist scholars have begun to recognize the close connection between canon law and the development of civil law in Western culture. Harold Berman's Law and Revolution was published by Harvard University Press in 1983, which identifies the origin of the Western legal tradition as the legal revolution of Gregory VII in 1076. We need comparable studies for previous centuries, but it is unlikely that Reformed Christians will write them in this generation. They are too immersed in the common ground theologies of the American civil religion and Abraham Kuyper's common grace theory. Constantine called together the Council of Nicaea. It is this appeal back to Constantine's precedent that alienates the modern Christian defenders of religious and political pluralism. They see clearly that the intellectual conflict within the Church over the legitimacy and possibility of Christendom has always been between the Constantinians and the Pietists, and they have self-consciously sided with the Pietists. The idea of a Christian ruler in an explicitly and legally Christian society is morally repugnant to them. They prefer to believe in religious neutrality, natural law, and a civil government that imposes sanctions other than those specified in the Bible. Those colonial Presbyterians who share this outlook revised the Westminster Confession of Faith to remove this one minuscule trace in the creed of the subordination of the civil magistrate to God. For the civil magistrate is not entitled to call a church assembly for council, then he surely is not required by God to listen to any pronouncements by such an assembly. If there is absolutely no legal connection between church and state, then there is no judicial obligation for a civil magistrate to listen to a church council. What appears to be an intrusion by the state into church affairs, calling a church assembly for council, is in fact a legal acknowledgment that the state must consider the judicial pronouncements of the church, not automatic subordination, but at least co-authority. The political pluralists recognize this, and have therefore denied the right of the Church to tell the State what the Bible requires of its magistrates. Then who should tell magistrates what is required of them? The sovereign people, the creators and sole enforcers of the civil covenant. Who, then, is the God of such a national covenant? The Offending Clause Having been called into session by Parliament, the Assembly had no qualms about adding this justification of Parliament's act. Quote, as magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves by virtue of their office, or they with other fit persons upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assemblies thirty one two End quote. this was a twofold justification: one why they came to Westminster and two, why they were taking over control of the church from the king and his bishops. The open enemy to the church was clearly Charles I. The Puritans of New England were in New England because of him and his father, James I. The Puritans did not need to be persuaded about the theological legitimacy of a synod to deal with Charles I, or the call by Parliament to assemble. They responded with enthusiasm, and they sat for four long years to complete their work. It is this clause that the American revision of 1788 removed. It is this clause that still retroactively bothers the consciences of those who profess allegiance to the revised Westminster Confession of Faith. Why? The clause no more authorizes the magistrate to tell the Church what to conclude than the Aryan emperors could lawfully tell the early Church what to believe. The magistrate calls the Synod only for consultation. Aye, there's the rub. The modern humanist asks rhetorically, why should a magistrate call a synod for consultation? The modern pietist asks the same, consultation about what? The modern humanist asks, isn't this a violation of the fundamental principle of the separation of church and state? The modern pietist asks the same. But the theonomist asks, what of the far more fundamental principle of the inseparability of religion and state? This is Van Til's legacy, to show that all self-professed religious neutrality is a myth and a deception, that all morality is inescapably religious, and that all law is grounded in a particular moral outlook. Civil laws forbid specific acts. They apply specific sanctions. There can be no civil sanction against something without interfering with the affairs of those who practice the forbidden act. Any act can be defended in terms of religion, smoking peyote, polygamy, ritual executions, anything. The question then must be, which religion? It is this question that American Presbyterians and all Trinitarian churches, save one, have refused to face squarely. That lone holdout is the tiny Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. An idol for destruction. The RPCNA, the Covenanters, still uses the original 1647 Confession. The Covenanters Parallel Political Organization, the National Reform Association founded in 1864, has been dedicated to getting a constitutional amendment passed that will put the name of Jesus Christ into the U.S. Constitution. This political pressure group deeply offends the modern Calvinist, pluralist intellectual. Gary Scott Smith writes, Despite all their protestations to the contrary, the root problem of NRA advocates was that they confused the Old Testament theocracy with the pluralistic pattern of civil government taught by the New Testament. End quote. His view of the New Testament is representative of virtually all contemporary American churches. Yet this view of the New Testament, first propounded politically by Roger Williams in Rhode Island in the 1640s, has yet to be defended biblically by any of its advocates. They write, as if there were a large body of published material that shows exegetically that this view of the New Testament is correct. On the contrary, there is not a single detailed book in political theory that attempts this necessary task of biblical exegesis. Every defense of pluralism in the name of Christianity appeals to some version of natural law theory. We have heard assertions about the New Testament's alleged commitment to pluralism for three and a half centuries but always without any expressly biblical evidence. Nevertheless, American Protestant churches have clung to the American civil religion as if it were expressly biblical. Whenever we theonomists mention this anomaly in public, it deeply offends the pluralists. A major offense of the theonomists is our public insistence that, quote, the Christian pluralistic emperor has no clothes, end quote. Herbert Schlossberg has performed yeoman service in exposing the dangers of any civil religion not grounded in a transcendental faith in the God who is there, and who made everything that is here. Quote, a religious statement, on the other hand, which says, do not be conformed to the values of society, swings and acts at the trunk of civil religion. Civil religion eases tensions where biblical religion creates them. Civil religion papers over the cracks of evil and biblical religion strips away the covering, exposing the nasty places. The American civil religion has become an idol. Schlossberg warns us regarding idols. Idols are hard to identify after they have been a part of the society for a time. It became normal for the people of Jerusalem to worship Molech in the temple, and it seemed odd that people calling themselves prophets should denounce the practice Molek was part of the establishment religious scene, one that had directed the national cult throughout living memory. The idol was per- supported by all the best elements of society, the political, economic, and religious power structure. That is why the vocation of prophet is so unpopular and so hazardous." What Van Til, Francis Schaeffer, and Schlossberg all failed to grasp was that the true prophet comes with a covenantal message that is both positive positive and negative. He calls men to repent from something in order that they may turn to something. He comes with a covenant lawsuit which threatens God's negative sanctions in history for a society's continuing disobedience and promises God's positive sanctions in history for a society that repents. The archetype is Jonah's covenant lawsuit against Nineveh. The prophet did not attempt to overthrow the existing social idol without offering an alternative, he was not so foolish as to attempt to overthrow something with nothing. He did not suggest that his listeners replaced something specifically evil with nothing in particular. He did not, in short, adopt the religion of civil neutrality. The sad fact is, Van Til, Schaefer, and Schlossberg rejected the role of the New Covenant prophet. They have all defended the idol of pluralism, not actively, but by default. They have rejected religious neutrality Within the churches, but they have affirmed it or refused to deny it for the civil order. They have all been faithful Presbyterians, faithful to the, the denomination's covenantal sellout of 1788. So has Westminster Seminary. With respect to a positive confession, they have all remained mute. Are they also deaf and blind? The problem of the drawbridge. The problem for those who reject the chapter 31, 2. Is the problem of the Christian who seeks permanent safety behind a raised drawbridge in a castle? To attack the enemy, he must first lower the drawbridge, but to lower the drawbridge is to invite attack. War is a twofold process. There can be no offense without a defense, and vice versa. A perfect defense destroys all offense. To live behind an impenetrable shield is to remove oneself and one's religion from history. The only place where this kind of safety from offensive attack is available is the grave. The ghetto is the cultural version of the graveyard. For the Church of Jesus Christ to have significant influence in society, it must first formulate a worldview. It must apply the principles of this worldview to every area of life in which sin presently reigns, for example, to everything. This is the long-lost discipline of casuistry, which died in the West around 1700 when Newton's Unitarian vision was on the ascendancy. The casuist must seek for legal principles, ecclesiastical and civil, either in the autonomous mind of man or else in the Bible. Van Til denied the legitimacy of the former quest. The theonomists have taken him seriously. The faculty of Westminster Seminary has not. So fearful of interference from the civil government are the pietists, and so vehement... Are the defenders of the autonomy of the church that they have joined with the humanists and anti Christians in proclaiming the theology of the raised drawbridge? The church agrees to say nothing about law or politics, and the politicians grant it tax exemption in exchange. The arrangement involves a commitment to a theology of Christian irrelevance in history. The church learns to remain silent, and the state promises to leave the church alone. But once the church has lost its voice, the state moves in to control it, compel it to the side with the state, and finally even destroy it. The experience of the churches and communist nations is proof. Enough. The Soviet Constitution of 1936 guaranteed freedom of religion. So what? If there is no neutral ground, then the drawbridge must remain lowered. Even if it is raised during a temporary attack, a secret passageway must remain open. For example, missions. The Church must always be on the offensive. The Great Commission must be pursued by the Church day and night, not the pseudo-Great Commission of modern pietism, the, quote, save souls, not culture, end quote, view of the Great Commission, but the comprehensive Great Commission issued by the God-Man, who possesses all power in heaven and on earth. Today's Christians reject such a view of the Great Commission. Such a view leads directly to a huge increase of personal and corporate responsibility for Christians— They do not want this added responsibility. They want to remove the church and Christians generally from all political conflict. They do not want Christians speaking authoritatively in the name of God in the world outside the local church and the Christian home. This is a view of Christianity as a movement that is somehow above and outside history rather than the religion of a God who is above and over history. It is, in short, Protestant Gnosticism. Raise the cultural drawbridge, they cry, and keep it raised. This is Westminster's Confession, Ghetto Theology. The issue is sanctions. The Augustinian monk Martin Luther launched the Reformation with a public challenge to the Roman Catholic Church. prove that God's positive sanction of eternal life is in any way earned by semi-autonomous Pelagian man. Luther was a dedicated predestinarian. With the Reformation itself came the next challenge to Rome, prove from the Bible that the sanction of excommunication of those Protestants proclaiming the sola scriptura position is lawfully imposed by the Roman Church. There was a third question, which split the Protestants. Identify the lawful sanctions of the civil government? Luther, an ethical dualist, appealed to natural law. So did the bulk of the post-1660 Puritans. But John Calvin, at least some of the time, affirmed the continuing validity of the Old Testament's specified civil sanctions. So did the long-neglected early 17th-century political theorist Johannes Althusius, who cited a body of late 16th-century expository literature to confirm his thesis. So did Hugo Grotius in the early years of the century. He switched to natural law two decades later. Finally, so did at least some of the English Puritans prior to the restoration of Charles II to the throne in 1660. It was only after 1660 and the immediate rise and triumph of Newtonianism that contractual natural law theory totally replaced covenantal biblical law theory in the thinking of Presbyterians. The reader needs to ask himself this question. If the specified civil sanctions of God's old covenant law are no longer binding on modern civil governments, then how can any aspect of God's moral law still be binding in the civil realm? If the answer is natural law, then how can Van Til's critique of natural law and man's self-proclaimed autonomous reason be correct? If the answer is not natural law, but not biblical law either, then what is the answer? This is the crucial question, intellectual and practical, facing the Christian world in general, and Westminster Seminary in particular. Without so much as a footnote, Van Til threw out political pluralism's baby with the Scholastic and Newtonian bathwater. Yet, Westminster Seminary simultaneously, number one, parades itself as a spiritual heir of Van Til, and number two, defends the ideal of political pluralism. This has been Westminster Seminary's epistemological problem for a generation. If Van Til is correct, then religious, intellectual, and political pluralism cannot possibly be correct. Is Westminster Seminary going to abandon Van Til publicly in favor of modern political pluralism, or scrap? pluralism publicly and defend Van Til. Theonomy, a reformed critique, once again has dodged the issue. This being the case, allow me to state the issue once one more time. Civil law, at the very least, is the realm of negative sanctions. These sanctions are physical or economic. They are also compulsory, the sword. There is an inescapable principle in all civil government, no sanction, no law. As the New England Puritans put it in their 1647 law code, quote, The execution of the law is the life of the law, end quote. In 1973, I put it this way in Appendix 4 of Institutes of Biblical Law, and I even put it in italics, quote, If covenant law is binding, then covenant law enforcement is equally binding, end quote. Theonomy of Reformed Critique is Westminster Seminary's long-delayed attempt to respond to the implications of this easily understood statement, although no contributor cited it. The reader must judge the competence of this response. Westminster's confession is my attempt to assist the reader. The issue is the ascension. As he reads this book in the Westminster book, the reader should ask himself this question, quote, What role in Westminster Seminary's theology and social theory Does the doctrine of Christ's bodily ascension to the right hand of God play, It is not sufficient to announce that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. It is not sufficient to refer continuously to Christ's resurrection. That he rose from the dead is significant. That he ascended to the throne of God is equally significant. He is both King of Kings and High Priest as a result of his ascension to the throne of God. The following question is inescapable. "...what is the relationship between the biblical doctrine of the Ascension and the biblical doctrine of New Covenant history?" The best place to begin such a study is Calvin's Institutes. In Book 2, Chapter 16, he discussed the Apostles' Creed. He discussed the implications of Christ's Ascension in Parts 14-16. through He said that it was the Ascension that transferred power to Christ and from Him to His Church. He tied the doctrine of Christ's ascension to the doctrine of God's kingdom in history. Quote, "Now having laid aside the mean and lowly state of mortal life and the shame of the cross, Christ, by rising again, began to show forth his glory and power more fully. Yet he truly inaugurated his kingdom only at his ascension into heaven." End quote. His departure allowed him to send the Holy Spirit. John 16:7. As his body was raised up above all the heavens, so his power and energy were diffused and spread beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth, He therefore sits on high, transfusing us with his power, that he may quicken us to spiritual life, sanctify us by his Spirit, adorn his Church with diverse gifts of his grace, keep it safe from all harm by his protection, restrain the raging enemies of his cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand and finally hold all power in heaven and on earth. All this he does until he shall lay low all his enemies. 1 Corinthians 15.25 Psalm one ten one. Who are our enemies too? And complete the building of his church. This is the true state of his kingdom. This is the power that the Father has conferred upon him until, in coming to judge the living and the dead, he accomplishes his final act. Quote. Finally, What is the relationship between the biblical doctrine of sanctification, definitive, progressive, and final, and the biblical doctrine of the ascension? What is the role of the doctrine of progressive sanctification in Westminster's confession? Is progressive sanctification in history restricted to the regenerate heart, the institutional church, and Christian families? If so, on what biblical basis is it so limited Why can't there be progressive sanctification in civil government? Why not in the economy? There was under the old covenant. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 8.18. Why not progress in society generally? What about in education, science, technology? Does Westminster's faculty have a doctrine of progress for New Covenant history? Can any amillennialist or premillennialist have a doctrine of progress for New Testament history? Conclusion These are a few of the questions that we hope Westminster's faculty will answer someday. But will we have to wait another 17 years? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts,